And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. We're continuing in our series on redemptive history. We just sang it beautifully in the first verse of that song. We've been spending the last months going through sacred story that centers on Jesus, who He is and what He's done. And we started at the beginning. We started with creation and worked our way all the way through the Old Testament. We ended our time in the late New Testament with the exile and the restoration. And that's pretty much it for the Old Testament. We're done. And so this morning we come to this really strange period in biblical history the time between the Testaments. And for that, we're going to use a passage that has nothing to do with the time between the Testaments. Matthew 17. Young Christians, young theologians, there's one question for you this morning. What is God saying to us? This is the good news of Jesus the Savior. After six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Pray with me. Every time you gather us for worship, O Lord, it's a replay of the Mount of Transfiguration. Filling our own ears with uncertainties and fears and vanities while wondering what, if anything, God will say to us. And then you show yourself in justice and mercy and love once again. Speak to us perfectly in Jesus, the flawless imprint of your glory, beauty, and redemption. Show us again the salvation of men and women and children in Jesus the Savior. Satisfy us with what you speak in Jesus and satisfy us with that only. And we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Be seated. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament sit 400 years. And that's why three quarters of the way through your Bibles, there's a strange break and suddenly a title page that says the New Testament, like we've been waiting for it, expecting it somehow. Two pages of onion skin paper with three words printed on them is meant to convey a span of 400 years. But why don't we have any scriptural books that chronicle those four centuries? There are no histories, no poems, no hymns, no covenantal prosecutions or promises, no threats of exile, no assurances of restoration. 
Because for 400 years, God was silent. For 400 years, God sat under a self-imposed silence. No word from heaven spread on the lips of a prophet. No strings of God-breathed words swirling around in an inkwell, waiting to be fished out by some God-appointed writer as he paints Scripture on a yellow roll of parchment. When Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, drops in his final punctuation mark and he hands his prophecy over to the people, a long silence follows. A pregnant silence. A pregnancy that is 400 years overdue. And at the end of it, it's Matthew the Evangelist, who is not the writer of the first gospel, it's just that his gospel shows up first in the sequence. It's Matthew the Evangelist who tells us that God has broken his silence. And Matthew tells us that the silence, the long silence is over by allowing us to hear an infant's cries in a manger in Bethlehem. And with a long genealogy, not some grand flourish of holy rhetoric, but a family tree, names, for the most part, we don't recognize, attached to stories, for the most part, that we don't know. But by the end of it, the point of Matthew's genealogy is clear. Jesus is what God is doing in the world. Jesus is what God is saying in the world. The word that God has for anyone with a question, or a troubled life, or worn out by sin and unfixed by the law, the soothing, heart-lifting Word of God for any of us and all of us is Jesus, which translated means saving one, or if you prefer His nickname, Emmanuel, God with us. Two well-placed words with just the right meaning to wipe away a grueling silence. One of the nominees for Best Picture in this year's Oscar race looks like it was found in a dusty corner in a studio vault. There's no color in the picture. There are no voices. It's a silent film titled The Artist. The story is a silent film icon, George Valentin, whose star is at its apex His fame is at its height when talking pictures are introduced. Refuses to adapt to the new technology. He wants no part of talking pictures. And the newspapers print a headlined quote from him. I am not a puppet. I am an artist. And there's the title of the film. There's artistry in his silence. You wouldn't think that a silent film would work in the year 2012. But to watch actors communicate with no words, with movement, with the ways they place their bodies, the ways they carry themselves in their bodies, with every facial expression, to see the physicality and the skill it took 
to make silent pictures, suddenly you realize nothing was added when the talkies came to theaters. Far more was lost. It takes a silent film 82 years after they vanished from the American landscape to show us that our words are mostly waste. They're cheap and they're flimsy and they're light. It takes 400 years of silence to show us God wastes no word. His words are hefty and sturdy and medicinal. 400 years of silence were to leave the people clinging for dear life to the things that God had already said. 400 years of silence were to leave the people hanging on the word that he would say next. But we shouldn't assume that nothing happened in that 400 years. Because we don't like silence, particularly when it's prolonged, we fill the space with our own noise, which is exactly what the people did. As they were trying to rebuild after the exile, as they were trying to ensure that it wouldn't happen again, they came up with their own very wordy versions of what God must want from them. To say it another way, instead of the covenant of God's love and redemption expressed simply through worship and practice, the people invented Judaism. You should realize, by the way, that Judaism was not a nice, neat, tidy, unified whole. It was very sectarian, filled with all kinds of denominations. And here are the major four. There was the Dead Sea community. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are the people who wrote them. Think of a whole group of John the Baptist types. A colony of John the Baptists. They believed that they were supposed to keep themselves pure by keeping themselves separate. So they lived away from everyone else in the caves along the Dead Sea. They were ascetics. They were known primarily for what they went without, like monks. They performed ritual immersions. They kept dunking themselves in water for purification. And their literature was all apocalyptic. It was all about the end. The Lord was coming to draw the age to a close. And His coming was right around the corner. And because they were so apocalyptic, they were all so celibate. And no surprise to anyone, they died out. Simple math, anytime the leader of a movement stands up and says, good news everyone, from here on we're celibate, that movement is dying. But at the time, they drew a lot of attention, and they had a pretty sizable following. There were the Pharisees. Their name comes from the Hebrew word meaning interpreters. They were the ones who put themselves forward as the interpreters of Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Incidentally, Torah was originally understood to mean instruction. Under the Pharisees, the word takes on a much more rigid meaning. It becomes known as law. The Pharisees were naturally the leaders of the synagogues, and their influence was most widespread among the people. But then again, 
Fear is always more popular with the people than anything else there is to be offered at the time. The Pharisees wanted to protect Israel from acculturation, from the pollution of God's people from Greek and Roman and the pagan cultures all around. So they had a strict script for life. It wasn't purity by separation this time. It was purity by rules. They had elaborate oral traditions, oral sayings, extra rules in other words. They built layers of the law around the law to keep everyone well clear, far back from even nearing the possibility of violating the law. And over time, the oral traditions came to hold as much authority as Torah itself. In spite of all their attempts, the Pharisees walled off their own hearts and the hearts of the people from the love of God. There were the Sadducees. They were the one percenters. They came from the high priestly aristocratic families. Originally, the Sadducees formed a kind of ruling council around the king called the Sanhedrin. Later in the time of Jesus, when the Pharisees become so popular among the people, the Sadducees had to let Pharisees onto the ruling council. But originally, they held it solely. Basically, the Sadducees believe nothing. They don't believe in predestination or the afterlife, angels, demons, heaven, hell, the need for salvation or a savior of any kind. But they control the temple because they're the high priestly families. And they're willing to use it like a powerful political lever to control the people and the culture and the life of Israel. They're more than willing to use what they consider to be the superstition built around the temple to maintain the status quo in their favor. In AD 70, when the temple is destroyed, the Sadducees vanish from prominence. And then there are the Zealots. Terrorists, revolutionaries, these guys wear a lot of camouflage, they shop at military surplus stores, they they whisper slogans under their breath like, Jerusalem for Jews, and on the weekends, they're in the foothills, practicing guerrilla maneuvers, hand-to-hand combat, sword fighting skills. When they come back into town, they can be found plotting conspiracies in the dark corners of the cafes around Jerusalem. They believe holiness will come through holy war, through driving out all foreigners and occupying powers. The zealots are always spoiling for a fight, and they don't care who it's with. And that's the world of the New Testament when Jesus appears. And because the people weren't using God's silence as he intended it, they missed the word he spoke to them next. The word designed to single-handedly justify and sanctify and glorify Israel and all the nations. The word who would transform the world. Jesus comes into the world and he doesn't sound like any of these others. So now we fast forward from a misunderstood manger to a misunderstood mountain excursion. Jesus is climbing a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. 
At the top of the mountain, there's to be a meeting like no other. More revelation, more of God's self-revealing. The mountain was high, the text says. They were probably doubled over and panting as they made the top. But what made them truly breathless was that on the way, Jesus had gone incandescent. He was hard to look at because he was too much to take in. Harder still to look away from because they'd never seen anything like this. And somewhere in the glare of him, Moses and Elijah show up. You understand why these two, who had long since left the earth, you understand why these two were there. The whole of the scriptures was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament, remember. It hadn't been written. The books hadn't been gathered and copied and distributed among the churches. When in the Old Testament people talked about the scriptures, they were referring to the Old Testament. And it was summarized under two headings. The law given by God through Moses and the prophets among whom Elijah was considered to be the greatest. It's not hard to join the dots from there. The law and the prophets, all of Scripture in other words, reaches for Jesus. The law and the prophets long for Jesus to come. The law and the prophets end in Jesus. The law and prophets have their fullest expression in the life and the ministry of Jesus. The condemnations of the law and its incomparable beauties too converge in Jesus. The severe threats of the prophet and their their soaring promises too come together in Jesus. Standing there like a frozen flash of lightning on top of the mountain, Jesus is being shown as a super collider where our frailty and brokenness And God's perfections combine. Where justice and mercy meet as some kind of strange new physics. Where the heart of God and the hearts of His people are fused together into a new shared heart. And Peter, in perfect Peter fashion, misses it. Why? Because he does what we always do. He fills the silence. And he settles for his own noise. Peter puts his ragged foot in his constantly running mouth. And he says, well this is just great. How about this? How about we just stay up here on top of this mountain. And we'll cut branches and make shelters for each of you. And for ourselves of course. But you first. You are the heavenly dignitaries. And this kingdom you've been talking about, Jesus, it'll just be us six. How about that? And the text says, while he was still talking. You hear the comedy? While Peter is still going on, he's interrupted. He's cut off. Peter is standing on the top of the mountain, blinking away the glory of Jesus. It's as obvious as the sun shining in his face, but Peter's blind to it, and he's yammering on like the brown-nosing disciple he is, saying, hey, Jesus, how about we do this? And the cloud comes upon them, and God's voice speaks from the cloud and says, hey, Peter, how about you give it a rest? 
Hey, Peter, how about you let somebody who knows what he's talking about do the talking for a change? The cloud voice silently thunders like a sonic boom that the disciples feel as much as they hear. This is my son whom I love and who is my love to you. Listen to him. Listen to him. Stop filling up the space with your noise. He is what I'm saying. The French novelist Gustave Flaubert believed in what he called le mot juste, the right word, a word that fit the sentence better than any other word known in all of language. His publisher would get so infuriated with Flaubert's anguishing over the right word that once he lashed out at his writer, stop obsessing over how to describe the mole on your mistress and give me something I can print. I know that you don't believe it. I know that you think you live in the 400 years between testaments where God has lost his voice where the cosmic cat has stolen his holy tongue, or he just can't find the right word for you, the word that will turn it all around for you. But the gospel says he was never at a loss. Jesus is the word that fits better than all others. Jesus is the right word. Jesus is what God has to say about righteousness. Because Jesus kept the law like it was pure, unfiltered joy and beauty. He saw in the law what we can't see. Like what was woven deep down in the law for our hearts. If you could get through the law without swindling your way through. Was the deepest pleasure imaginable in heaven or on earth. Because it was the very heart of God himself. It's what God loves most about himself. That's really what's in the law. And because of the way Jesus lived the law, it's not like being shackled and manacled in stocks for public humiliation. It's more like the heart with wings. Jesus is what God had to say about worship, who never handed in a half-hearted minute of the stuff in all his life. Jesus is what God has to say about the temptation to sin who warded it off like you tried to keep from catching the stomach virus going around or cancer or the swine flu. Jesus is what God has to say about the pollution in our hearts and lives and the purity He has to replace it with. Jesus who touched lepers because He was more catching than they were. Jesus is what God has to say about our loneliness, our aching aloneness. Jesus who threw his arms wide to outcasts and undesirables, who tirelessly welcomed hookers and grifters and taxmen and liars and cheats so you fit in just fine. Jesus is what God has to say about love, who pursued us redemptively, not retributively. He came in the tenderness of infancy, not riding a war horse to settle the score. 
Jesus is what God has to say about grace because it was your cross he was pinned to and it was your hole in the ground he went stale in. But instead of waiting for you to catch up and manage these on your own, which you never could, he went ahead and took care of them himself. And the nearest you'll ever get to the cross is carrying one just for the sheer pleasure of being like Him. And they may carry you into the tomb one day, but you'll spend far longer outside of it than you ever will in. And Jesus is what God has to say about what your heart is supposed to feel like. Because the stone was rolled away. And Jesus was brought out of the tomb. He didn't belong there. And if you are in him, you don't belong buried and lifeless either. And isn't it time, oh, isn't it time for your heart to shed its burial wrappings? The gospel is God is not silent and we talk too much and say far too little because what we say says nothing of our bottomless need and God's perfect supply in Jesus. What we say says nothing of Jesus as the most dynamic, eloquent, heart-reviving word there is. We don't let Jesus speak for Himself. We don't tell the unadorned truth about Him and expect that to be enough. We don't expect anything to come of it at all. Even though He's the Word spoken to create all things. Even though He's the Word spoken to savingly elect. Even though He's the Word spoken to seal eternity. Why do we think nothing happens when we speak of Him? Somehow we've abandoned our theology and we don't believe that Jesus is God's best word and we certainly don't believe that he is our best word. But test it for yourself. Don't speak when you aren't asked to. And when you are asked, speak only of the sufficiency of Jesus. Or again, say nothing. See if your words don't have more power and purpose in them. Do you know why we are so constantly frustrated and discontent and bored and numb and fearful and anxious and depressed and despondent? Because we forget that God is not silent and we're too noisy What if we started to remember and Jesus became for us the effective word for every trouble and trial and triumph? What if Jesus were the word to fill up and frame all of our experience? But look, you should be warned about this. Jesus is the word that goes off like a stick of dynamite in the bloodstream. Invoking Jesus in all we face, applying his sayings and his ministry and his redemption and his glory to our every situation will probably change us who speak of him more than anyone else. But that wouldn't be all bad, would it? Maybe I'm alone in this. Maybe I'm not. Maybe you're just like me. But I wake up every morning and I look in the mirror and I think to myself... No one needs the dynamic change of the gospel more than I do. 
And daily, God speaks to my need and His ordained change in me by relentlessly proclaiming Jesus to me. If Jesus is proclaimed by God Himself, He is not a wasted word. Do you know why we are so ill-equipped when ministry falls into our laps? Ministry to those in our homes, those in our church, to our neighbors who don't believe and don't share our hope, dim as we make it from time to time. Because when given the chance to speak from faith, we open our mouths and out comes static. We've been given the word that opens heaven. We've been given the word that opens the heart of God. The word that redeems the world. And yet we choose words that are flat and airless and fruitless. Stop speaking to make others think well of you. You are not the issue. You are never the issue. You will never be the issue. Speak to make others crave the fullness of Jesus. Skeptics, do you want to know why you are still so uncertain as to what God has said? What has He said to you? Forget what He said to the world. That's too big to conceive of. Let's just start with you. You're world enough. What has He said to you? He's not going to write it out in the stars. He's never done that for anyone. And what he has to say to you isn't spread out and hidden away in the world's religions to be puzzled together like an existential treasure hunt. Just remember our passage from this morning. Jesus is on top of a mountain and Moses is there and Elijah the prophet is there, both testifying by their presence that all of their sayings, all of their writings, all of their work was pointing to Jesus And the voice from the cloud, God's voice, says, This is my Son, and I'm pleased with Him. Listen to Him. What God has to say to you, He says in Jesus. If you want to hear what God is saying, listen to Jesus. And don't read books about Him. Don't read the unauthorized biographies. You're wasting your time. Read the authorized versions, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Start with John. Listen to what Jesus says about Himself. And you'll learn what God is saying to you. And if you want someone to read with, come find me. Do you know why we're so nervous and uncertain over who we should elect to be elders in our church? Nominations closed last week, it's done. In the next year, we move to election. But do you know why we're so up in arms over it? We don't know what to look for because we don't know what to listen for. And again, we're impressed with our own noise. I'll tell you exactly who you should elect. Only those men who no matter what issue is before us have only one thing to say. The same thing to say 
over and over again. They tell us of the love of God in Jesus. They tell us of the grace of God in Jesus. They tell us of the righteousness of God in Jesus. They tell us of God's sin hatred in Jesus and the unapologetic new life in Jesus. Vote for men who talk of Jesus so much you'd think you'd tire of it, but they keep at it because they know Jesus is the inexhaustible Word and God's loved elect can never tire of Him. It was the great theologian turned actress Demi Moore who taught us again this week why we need God to speak definitively to all of us in Jesus Christ the Son. Moore admitted herself to a hospital for exhaustion earlier in the week. But it's not exhaustion she suffers. It's the dark night of the soul. She's seen her own heart. And she doesn't know how to answer it. Here's what she said in an interview with Harper's Bazaar earlier in the year. I would say that what scares me the most is that I'm going to ultimately find out at the end of my life that I'm really not lovable, that I'm not worthy of being loved, and there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And let's imagine you receive the call to go to the hospital and pay the visit. The call comes to you, and you're to go to her room speak to her pastoral words of comfort and hope and life. What would you say to all of that? You know exactly what to say to that. God has broken his silence. God has spoken his full heart in Jesus. And all you ever have to do is echo in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Long ago and at many times, in many ways, the Lord our God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son, O Lord. Oh, to speak more simply, more clearly, more powerfully and graciously by speaking of Jesus. Make our wasted words distasteful to us. Cause us to lose our desire and our breath for them. And instead, give to us only the good news that comes in proclaiming the Savior to ourselves, to each other, to our neighbors and our city. And for this, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.